Let me go ahead and start with something deeply spiritual, if I might. Word of warning. Do not ever go scuba diving with your pastor. Do not ever go scuba diving with your pastor. I'm a fair diver, but I am the worst partner in the world to that which is deemed of extreme importance. One, surviving the dive. Two, making it home. Let me explain what I mean. When you go diving, you have what's called a buddy, buddy diver, a buddy partner. And on at least two occasions, I have put my partner in grave danger because I became distracted. I mean, it's another world down there. So one time I was diving with my uncle, who happens to be a smoker, and he quickly ran out of air. And he's giving me the uh, uh, sign, can't breathe, help, give me some of your compressed air. And I'm over here looking at all these fish. <laughs> and they're gorgeous. And I'm kind of in a trance, there's beautiful colors. And look at this, and he's literally I never noticed him. He had to get the attention of the dive master. He did live. He did live. The second time, I was diving with his daughter, my cousin, and we were diving shipwrecks, which is just amazing. And uh, we're down for about an hour, and we'd see this shipwreck, and oh, and then there's that one over there. Oh, it's just a, a few feet further. And this one's just a few yards further. And we came up about an hour later, and the dive boat was so far away, you could hardly see it. It was the longest swim of my life. It's not unlike what the author is warning against today, spiritual drift. Spiritual drift doesn't feel deliberate. Rather, it's when we become distracted by the things of the world. And it's not until later that we surface and realize how far we are away from the truth and the danger that we, we are in. Let's pray, and we'll look at this warning passage together. Our gracious Father, we do thank you that we can unite our hearts as a body of believers and submit ourselves to the Word of God Father, clearly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this author has put together not only this, this manifesto on the majesty of Christ in comparison to anything else that exists, but he is also incredibly pastoral. Because as he seeks to exalt Christ and correct our perception, he also warns us of the danger of drifting from our first love, of carelessly considering it not so important, of resting on our laurels instead of holding fast to the truth. Father, we need this. We need this desperately. We need to understand it. We need a reality check. We need to surface and see if we have drifted in any way and we need to draw near. Father, I pray that as a church family, we would spend these next few moments and just relish our time together. And we would just bask 
in the light of your word. This truth, this truth that is timeless, this truth that feeds our soul. Father, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And we know that even with faith, it needs to grow. We need our muscles strengthened. We need more spiritual fortitude. Many of us are famished because we haven't been in the Word. And so we ask for a feast this morning. We ask that you would transform us by the power of your Word, through the power of your Spirit, and that in the power of that Spirit, we would go forth and we would share this truth with others. Fan the flame of our hearts this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just a quick recap and setting, it's important to remember that the author is writing to Jewish believers, most likely a, a church in Rome. Towards the end of the book, it says, those from Italy greet you as, those, uh, as though there were those outside of Italy who are writing back. They're Jewish believers. They've left their former life in Judaism, but yet there's still connections and there's pressure from that former community. They've embraced Jesus Christ, but it seems as though their own people are starting to persecute them. There's a temptation to return back to their old life, their old synagogue, their own old community, and all the entrappings that go with it. And this letter is one of encouragement and exhortation not to, watch this, to drift away. Don't drift away, but draw near. Don't drift away. Instead, hold fast. And so if you've been with us the last three weeks, we have done this wonderful overview. We've exalted the majesty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We've seen that His person and His work is superior to anything that is created. In fact, we found out that Jesus Christ is indeed the author of creation. The Redeemer is the Creator. And then he, he takes us on this journey of comparison. He's going to show how Jesus is superior to the angels. How He is superior to Moses. He is superior to the Old Covenant and to the temple. And He's going to take us through about nine and a half chapters of deep, solid Christology. Doctrine. Truth that is meant to change our thinking show itself in action in our lives. And then he's going to steer us into the practical. He starts off with, Christ has spoken to the prophets and the fathers in many portions and in many ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his Son. If you're looking for a, a theme for the whole book, it is staying the course by understanding the superiority of Christ. Stay the course, don't drift away, but draw near. And we do that by understanding how great Jesus is. If I could just stop right there for a second 
and ask you, and I know most of you here, do we need to understand better? Maybe not understands the word. Do we need to realize with a greater depth how great Jesus is? I mean, I think, I think the answer is clearly, yes, we're Christians, of course. But let me press us. How often do we actually think about Jesus? And when we do think about Jesus, do we simply think about Jesus like the character on a flannel board? You know, with the white and then the blue, you know, shawl thing. Or do we think of him in a Trinitarian fashion, to use theology proper? Do we think of him as the second person of the Godhead? God of very God, who through the annals of eternity past, when God said, I want to be reconciled to my creation, but it's going to require a sacrifice, and the second person of the Trinity says, I will go. And when the time came, he threw off his royal robes and stepped down from his royal throne, sunk himself into human flesh, lived the life that we could not live, and died the death we deserved on the cross. And if that doesn't come to mind, and I confess it doesn't come to mind, I don't think deeply enough about Christ. And right now you're thinking, wow, this is the introduction? This is heavy. That's why we're in Hebrews. Because it's heavy in such a glorious way. It's heavy in such a way that it's not an emotional, get us fired up sort of thing. It's the type of thing that takes us so deep in our thinking that the reality of who Jesus is, even in our finite minds, is meant to be almost overwhelming. So much majesty that we get an overwhelming sense of our own depravity and neediness. And yet that is not meant to have us shy away, but it's meant to have us draw near to the throne of grace as his children who need help. We need help, can I say it, not drifting. And so today we have the first of our five warning passages in Hebrews. We've had three very, very encouraging weeks. This one's going to be a little bit of a punch in the throat, but not in a heavy way. More of in a helpful way, if I might say that. Like a good coach, the author is speaking to a congregation of professing believers. He's treating them like they're on the team. But he's warning them that if they do not persevere, will prove that they were not of us because they left us. So don't get tied up with the whole warning passages. Who's he talking to? He's doing what pastors do every week. I'm preaching to a congregation of believers. Get a collective amen? Amen. 
And yet, let's not be so naive. Not all of you are saved. That becomes really uncomfortable. I can't believe the pastor is saying that. Is he talking about me? I don't know. I might be. If you've never repented and believed, you're not saved. Okay? But I preach in such a way that I'm treating you like believers because that's what you profess to be. You're on the team, right? But let's be honest. There will be some of us who have never truly believed and one day will walk away from the faith. James is an excellent uh, compendium to this book. Whom God saves, he sanctifies. Genuine faith perseveres. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now that's the doctrine. Let's talk about the practical. All of us are guilty of spiritual drift, right? One time or another, multiple times, all of us are guilty of drifting. Maybe you've used the word backsliding, right? To coin a popular term. Unfortunately, in this day and age of easy believism, no one really treats it like that big of a deal. Countless books have been written to soothe the conscience of the backslider and provide comfort in the midst of sin, assuring us completely of our eternal security and salvation. But could it be that we are unwittingly doing one another a disservice by not allowing our conscience to be pricked? Could it be that we're numbing that which needs to be poked and prodded? Are we guilty of minimizing the seriousness of spiritual drifting? Let me say that again. Are we, collectively, as believers, as a church, personally, guilty of minimizing spiritual drift because it doesn't seem or feel deliberate? I don't think any of us in here would say, yeah, I deliberately spiritually drift. And somehow we equate that, well, if it doesn't feel deliberate, therefore it's not really that wrong, and therefore there's not really any serious consequences, right? I think the author's going to disagree with us today. Three points will navigate us through this warning passage. Number one, avoid the drift from the word. Avoid the drift from the word. Number two, neglecting is rejecting. And number three, the word is trustworthy. Let's look at the first one. Avoid the drift from the word. Verse one, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For this reason, in light of all that I've said so far, given the superiority of Christ, that there is nothing that comes close, Al Mohler says it well, Jesus demands and deserves to be heard. Listen up is what he's saying. Calvin says it this way, The greater the rank of Christ above the angels the more reverence is to be paid to the gospel 
than to the law. In simple terms, the antidote for drifting is to pay attention, to listen up. Now, let's talk about drifting for a moment. Drifting is not um, deliberate in the sense that it's like uh, raising the anchor a little bit and turning on the trolling motor and drifting. We call that drifting. That's, that's not what it's talking about here. No, no. Drifting is the sense, I heard one commentator put it, it's like a vessel trying to make its way into a harbor and the current and the wind is keeping that vessel from getting in to safety. Or like when I was scuba diving, it, it was, I didn't realize it, but there was currents taking me at the time. Very gentle, very soft currents. Did the boat move? I would like to think that the boat moved, but who actually moved? I moved, but it was almost imperceptible, drifting away from a fixed position. One guy says it this way, the temptation for these readers was to disregard the seriousness of Christian commitment. The drift was drifting away from holding fast to the Son's Word. The drift was a drift away from commitment and into autonomy. I want us to think about these first century readers. If this epistle was written sometime between AD 64 and AD 68, and if this church is indeed in Rome, there are some undercurrents, you might even say riptides, that are making it difficult, and it's far beyond distraction. This book says they have not suffered to the point of shedding blood, yet I'll promise you it's probably not far off, because who is the emperor? Nero. The fire was in AD 64, so they have seen what has happened to their brethren. Add to that that just five years earlier, Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome because, quote, they constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. Historians believe that, that the, the, Jewish, the, the Jewish community that still believed in Judaism was very frustrated with those that believed in Christ, and there was constant conflict probably trying to twist their arm for them to come back to the faith. Well, Emperor Claudius got fed up, runs them all out of Rome. In fact, that's why Priscilla and Aquila end up at Corinth. But then a few years later, they're allowed to come back. I'll promise you that the Jewish community in Rome now is not going to let that happen again. They've got a tight grip on Judaism. If you've ever traveled to Rome or places in Europe, you will find pockets of Jewish communities that date back millennia. And so you can imagine being a Jewish Christian. All my cousins have rejected me. I'm not invited to these family events anymore. I'll see people on the street and they treat me harshly. And then there's those that are trying to woo me back. And in addition to that, the pagan Gentiles don't like Christians and are threatening to kill me. There's an undercurrent that is making them question their commitment to Christ. Now, we don't feel this kind of persecution, at least not yet today, 
But the same undercurrent, the same pressure and distraction, both the negative and the positive, are what cause us to question or drift from our commitment. And as I mentioned, drifting is dangerous. We can all identify with this. I can see it in your eyes right now. You're all understanding what I'm talking about because it doesn't feel deliberate. I didn't intentionally do that. I didn't mean to. Look, churches don't show up one Sunday and immediately embrace heresy and go apostate. It just doesn't happen. Rarely do they punt orthopraxy and embrace the, uh, the rainbow flag of homosexuality in one day. But denominations, Christians, churches drift away from the Word and into liberalism slowly imperceptibly, day by day, week by week. Just a little current event. The largest evangelical denomination, the Southern Baptist, which you may not realize, last year embraced revolution, uh, I'm sorry, resolution number nine, which basically said that the critical race theory and intersectionality are useful tools in understanding some of the social ills and problems as of today. That's kind of interesting. Apparently, the Word of God is not sufficient anymore, and we need Karl Marx to help us out. That's what critical race theory and intersectionality is. Now, we're not dyed in the wool of Southern Baptists. We happen to be affiliated with the Southern Baptists of Texas. But let me tell you why that seems so unusual. This is the same denomination that in the 70s went to bat and went into battle to fight for inerrancy when every other seminary out there, except for a few, had punted it. And they won their seminaries back and they won their churches back and they held fast to the inerrancy of the Word of God. But guess what? If they're now punting sufficiency, they're going to end up on the rocks in the same place anyway. You lose sufficiency, you lose inerrancy. How did that happen? How did that happen with the most conservative, largest evangelical denomination right now? How did that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. They've spent the last two decades being seeker-sensitive. Consumerism. Asking what they want, mirroring the world. Developing programs and this and that and the other. So it was only a slight shift to get there. They had drifted because they drifted away from the pure preaching of God's Word and into consumerism. The same is true for us as individuals, for us as a church as well. When it says pay closer attention to what we have heard, What we have heard is not Barna's statistics or the latest church growth movement. What we have heard is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cure for drifting is not to care less, but to care more. You say, but I don't understand church politics, denominations, that doesn't really affect me. So let's talk individually how we drift. And I think it'll start to make more sense. Let's start out with busyness, right? We all drift spiritually because of busyness. 
I mean, between the kids, the spouse, the career, the bills, the soccer league, taking care of aging parents, you fill in the blank. Devotion to Christ and to his church takes a back seat. I mean, it's not like you intentionally filled every waking moment in your calendar. It's just life happens, right? I didn't intentional, intentionally start to give up quiet times. But you know what? Before you know it, you've drifted. And then there's laziness. I mean, no one likes to admit this is one of the reasons. But whether it's missing, missing church, missing small group, misplacing your Bible... It's this, oh, all this is so hard attitude. Have you heard yourself saying that before? Church, church life, Christianity, it all just, it feels so heavy. I mean, no one thinks of themselves as lazy. We, we always explain it away. We always have good excuses. I just, I need more sleep than other people. I need more me time or mental health days. It's not like I intended to become a, a 50 percenter at church. But before you know it, you've drifted. And then there's selfishness. No one can forget the passion they had when they were a brand new believer. I mean, you couldn't keep quiet, could you? Maybe you were in college and you went home and you just turned on the fire hydrant and told mom and dad about how you met Jesus. You know, you're so excited. Amen. You served everyone. You died to self. And yet, over time, that passion cooled. And comfort took its place. And complacency. It's not that exciting anymore, right? The honeymoon's over. Oh, you, you've, you've come up with lots of excuses. You blame it on the church. All the people are hypocrites, right? And that pastor, he's got ulterior motives. But deep down, you, you know the reason. You just aren't interested anymore, and you just don't want that kind of commitment. And so you play the victim. You rail against commitment and membership and, and yet complain that they don't minister to you the right way. And before you know it, you've, you've drifted. Spiritual drift seems unintentional. But in reality, there's a deliberate root cause. Are you ready for a deep, deep, deep theological truth? You ready? You might want to write this down. You do what you want to do. You do what you want to do. You pursue what you want to pursue. You choose to do this and not that. You choose to be here and not there. You choose to do this easy thing rather than this hard thing. And Chris and I didn't talk this morning, but he hit it during his time around the Lord's table. The Bible calls it idolatry. You know, we think of idolatry as, as, as some, you know, 
half-naked man in a third world country bowing to some sort of carved idol or totem pole. But the Bible calls idolatry as simply placing the creation above the creator in importance, in time, in value. And that's one reason why the author of the Hebrews starts out right out of the box and says, Jesus is God and He is the Creator and you're not. And neither are the angels and neither was Moses. In fact, neither was anything else. So maybe like Hebrews, like the Hebrews, you're a little bit convicted right now. If you're like me, I'm saying, wow, those first three sermons were a lot easier. This is kind of hard. But hey, I got I to gotta dust myself off. I got to remember, once saved, always saved. I'm going to relabel my estate as backsliding. If I'm really doing poorly, I'm going to call myself a carnal Christian. I'm going to realize God's probably a little disappointed, but hey, I'm going to hang on to my get-out-of-hell-free card, and all's going to be okay, right? God may be disappointed, but you know what? Everything else will be just fine because, hey, I'm going to heaven. And you know what the author says? Not so fast. And I'm convinced this is why pastors don't preach on this. Because everyone gets a little nervous. It's like, are we saying we don't believe in eternal security? Are we saying we we work for our salvation? Can I say no and no? And yet I'm not going to take the teeth out of this warning passage. I cannot tell you how many commentaries I have at home that spend pages and pages trying to figure out who the audience is so that this all fits into a nice, neat little theological box. We're not going to do that here. You did nothing to earn your salvation. Salvation is monergistic, as the Puritans said. It is all of God. And once saved, always saved. But the faith that saves is the faith that will persevere. And what kind of pastor, what kind of coach would this guy be if he saw people drifting and he said, no, 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 don't worry about it. Hey, you over there, don't worry about it. You hold on to that day you got your baptism and it'll all be okay. He cares too much about their soul for them to rest in an intellectual profession of faith or a day when they ask Jesus into their heart and may not be saved. And so he calls to them and he says, pay attention, you're drifting. You put your head down, you looked up again, now we're a mile away, stop. Because at some point, it may be too late. Look at our second point. Neglecting is rejecting. The author does something very interesting here. If you've taken a debate class before, you know what a a, a fortori is. You know, taking something small. If it's true here, then it's true here. You know, bigger. Uh, In... Jewish literary circles is called a qual wa homer. It means light and heavy. If this light thing, if this little thing is true, well then how much more is this big thing really true? 
So go back to that thing I just said, that, that maybe you're feeling convicted, but you're just going to hold on to it and not worry about it. Well, look at how this light and heavy argument is centered around one verse. Look at verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through our Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. How will we survive? How will we escape? Fill in the blank. Penalty, judgment, if we neglect being saved. Think about it in terms of this. We have them back there. They're called lifesavers, and they're, they're named after a real lifesaver when you would throw a float out to someone who's drowning. How will you escape drifting off and drowning if you neglect the salvation that has been provided for you? Those who are saved are believers. Believers, present tense, believe. It's not rocket science. Yes, once saved, always saved. But believers believe. So watch what he does here. The, the, the very center of this argument is, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Neglecting is rejecting. He says, for if the word, verse 2, spoken through angels proved unalterable. What he's talking about there is the old covenant. Remember, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that Judaism believed that the old covenant, the law, was mediated by angels, delivered by angels. Stephen seems to, to uh, indicate that in his sermon. Galatians mentions it, but it was delivered to Moses, possibly through an angel. Seems to be some scriptural evidence for that. But Every Jew knows what he's talking about. He's basically saying, we all believe in the Hebrew Scriptures. We all believe in the Old Testament. And if the Old Testament, mediated by angels, had consequences, the law had consequences. The law, to disobey the law, there was punishment, right? So whether it was uh, breaking the Sabbath day, whether it was stealing, whether it was manslaughter, the law had attached to it, disobedience to the law, had punishment. Governmentally, but then also divinely sometimes. Sometimes God exacted immediate judgment on those who broke the law. If we all, as good Jews, he's saying, if we all believe in the Hebrew Scriptures, and we all know the law and believe the law, and if the law had uh, judgment and punishment attached to it for disobedience, that's the light thing. How much more the new covenant, not given to us by angels, but given to us by the Son of God, how much more are the consequences for that sort of neglect, that sort of disobedience? Now watch him drive this heavy home with the third point, the word is trustworthy, meaning the new covenant word is trustworthy. Verse 2 again, I'm sorry, verse 3. After it was first spoken through our Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. He says, hey, 
If you trust the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, how much more should you trust the New Testament? It was confirmed. It was communicated. It was confirmed, and it was testified. It was communicated by the Son Himself. God. It was confirmed. It was confirmed by signs and miracles and the foundation of the church. There was some amazing stuff going on. And then he looks at me and says, it was also confirmed by gifts of the Holy Spirit. By you, he says, you. Each one of us know that we've been given a gift by the Holy Spirit when he saved us. That's something we didn't, we didn't produce on our own. We can take no credit for. His word is testified in you. And then it's also testified and confirmed by those who passed it along. There's a story I love. So not only did you have the scriptures in the first century, okay? But you had those who testified it was true. 1 Corinthians 15 says 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus at one time, right? And we know from Scripture and church tradition that the disciples did what they were called to do. They reproduced themselves. Church history testifies to that as well. The Apostle John discipled a man named Polycarp. You may recognize that from your church history class. Polycarp was burned at the stake in A.D. 155. He was 86 years old. He was called to renounce and deny Christ. And he said, these 86 years, my Lord has been faithful to me. How could I possibly testify against him or deny him now? John discipled Polycarp. Polycarp was preaching one day, and a young man named Irenaeus heard him. Irenaeus heard the truth from Polycarp's preaching and wrote down this succession. This guy I heard today was discipled by the Apostle John, who was discipled by Jesus Christ, and everything he's saying matches the Word of God over and over again. And then we have a historian in the 4th century who says, and I've got a copy, a fragment of Irenaeus's autobiography where he wrote this down. And we see one after another after another. What the author is saying here is, hey guys, we not only know this is true, it was not only confirmed by the son who spoke it, it was not only testified by the apostles who repeated it, it's not only testified by you who embody it, But guys, it's only been about 30 years since the death of Christ. There's plenty of living people to tell you that it's true. Don't drift away from this. It's so true. You can see how this coach of the Hebrews can so confidently exhort them to draw near, to hold fast, because they must? No, because they must. Because it's the Word of God that holds the people of God. So let's get practical here for a second. If you're here, you're probably not in a state of final rejection. But you may be in the process of drifting. 
We have assurance of salvation as believers, but nowhere in the New Testament is assurance given to someone who is in wanton, open rebellion. Simply put, when Christians sin, they not only grieve the Holy Spirit, but they grieve themselves. David talked about how his eye wasted away from grief when he was in sin with Bathsheba, how his bones rotted within him. The question is, do you realize you're drifting, and is it bothering you? So the author holds up the Word of God, and he says, look this way. How far are you from it? I would say, don't be like me. Come up for air. Don't assume you're closer than you really are. I don't know what currents are drawing you away, but, but you need to figure out which ones they are. Is it busyness? Is it laziness? Is it selfishness? Is it something else? Whatever it is, I'll promise you it's idolatry. It's putting the creation above the creator. And so figure out what it is. Repent of it and then pay attention. Hebrews 4.16, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Chapter 7, verse 25 says, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Though this is a warning passage, and though this is difficult to swallow, there is great hope here, because all we have to do is cry out, and our great high priest who intercedes for us will help us. Will throw us that lifesaver, as it were. It's like, it's like he's not even saying you have to do all the hard swimming back. I will help you. I will intercede for you. But then we need to be vigilant. Holding fast means not just hearing with our ears, but hearing with our heart. And hearing with our hands, James 1.22, Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Al Mohler again says, We must pay attention and obey the word of God. Orthodoxy and obedience are the oars that we must use for fighting against the straying current of spiritual drift. Practically, what does this mean? Well, if drifting is drifting from our commitment to our Lord and His church, then we need to cut the excuses. And we need to realize that we're drifting ultimately because we want to. We're drifting because something has taken a greater place of importance rather than Christ and His church. And with that, we don't want to be held accountable. Drawing near then is laying down your life, laying down your rights, laying down your preferences. Drawing near and holding fast is being all in. It is realizing the majesty of Christ that He saved me not only for eternity, but for the here and now. And that He's not asking me to do life alone, but He's asking me to do it with my church family. And so, practically, I would say, draw near to your church family 
warts and all. Stop the excuses about there, there are too many hypocrites. We always got room for one more. Realize that Christianity is hitching our wagon to Jesus Christ. It's not saying thanks for the gift and I'm going to go sailing over here. The consequences are too devastating. But let me leave you with this. When you not only make that commitment, but when you're vigilant to hold fast, you will realize that all those other distractions pale in comparison to a life fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Amen? And so, Father, I pray that as this is a difficult passage, that it would warm our hearts in the same way that the other ones did. The other ones which, which glorified our Lord Jesus Christ and extolled His majesty. May we be willing to take this admonition as much as we were willing to hear about the glories of Christ. And in doing so, may you be pleased with us, and may we be satisfied in you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.